Broadcasting live from atop the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West, you are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk Show. All right. Happy to have you along, my fellow Americans. Sam Bushman and Kirk Crosby live on your radio. Hard-hitting news the networks refuse to use, no doubt, starts now. This, my fellow Americans, is the broadcast for Friday, November the 27th in the year of our Lord, 2020. This is our one of two and our goal always to protect life, liberty, and property and to promote God, family, and country on your radio and the traditions of our founding fathers. Yes, indeed, we use the blueprint for liberty, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution for the United States of America as our guide. We're convinced the checks and balances brilliantly put in place by the Founding Fathers, one of the great peaceful restorative solutions we have at our fingertips in modern day. We also are convinced that revolution does not work. That's why we stand for restoration, peaceful restoration of the greatest country on the face of the earth. Wow, most talk shows taking a break for the holidays. We were live on Thanksgiving Day, proud to be so, and live today as well. When we are live on Thanksgiving, Liberty Roundtable Live team, to give thanks and to wish all of you a happy, blessed Thanksgiving day and weekend. Um, we wanted to talk about America's socialist origins. Was America once socialist? The answer, surprisingly, yes. The early settlers were socialist, but then Governor Bradford and others learned that the free enterprise system was the key to solutions. And Governor William Bradford wrote a book or a pamphlet that, that documented his experiences titled Bradford's History of Plymouth Plantation, 1606 to 1646. Quite interesting, to say the least, as we study America and Thanksgiving. Ever wonder why I'm thankful in 2020? Stephen Mosher, Population Research, pop.org, talked about it. Um, we talked a lot about Thanksgiving. And uh, former Sheriff Richard Mack jumped on the radio expressed his gratitude on this beautiful Thanksgiving Day. That was yesterday. We talked about that in detail. Uh, we also talked about this interesting tidbit. You're thankful. You told us why. The Times Daily Newsletter invited readers to submit six words about what made them grateful this Thanksgiving. And I found that interesting. Because uh, Hemingway was, uh, you know, suggest, hey, write a novel in six words or less. That's where the challenge kind of came from. Uh, the New York Times Daily Newsletter kind of highlighted this and got a bunch of answers from people. Richard Mack said, I'm thankful for God, family, country. I said, thank God for life and family. How to find gratitude in hard times, an interesting Apple News headline. How do you find gratitude in hard times, huh? Thankful for you. We talked about citizens for free speech. Mentioned how they're thankful for all the work that uh, we all do as citizens and Americans. And there you have it. I'll leave out all the political stuff. But I'm telling you right now that we need to be grateful for what we have. Grateful for our lives. Grateful for our freedoms. Grateful for our homes. You know, a lot of people don't have homes, folks. Yeah, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, sadly, we've kind of looked at it in America. And I'm not saying I have this view, but I'm saying I think as a whole we have this view. Oh, if you're homeless, you must be lazy. Oh, if you're homeless, you must not be willing to work. Or if you're homeless, you, it, it's your fault somehow. 
And ladies and gentlemen, that could not be further from the truth in many cases. Uh, with the COVID coming on, with the economic doldrums happening, uh, it's happening to more and more and more people, sadly. And many people are wonderful people. They just don't have a hand up. They just don't have opportunities. Somehow, circumstantially, things have just not gone their way. And many times as a result, you know what? We turn a blind eye. I saw a video last night that highlights this. A church was going to get a new pastor. And uh, so they were waiting for the new pastor. And while they were waiting, this homeless dude rolls in. And he kind of sits there for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And no one really said, well, one person said hi to him. And everybody kind of just turned up their nose and looked at him funny. And anyway, long story short, they got ready. They introduced the pastor. Everybody looked around waiting for him. Well, the homeless guy was ordered to the back of the church. So we had to walk all the way to the front. And his message was, I want you to ponder in your hearts how you've treated me. Come back next week and you'll hear my first sermon said the pastor as he revealed himself as the homeless man. Ladies and gentlemen, we have serious, serious work to do in the greatest country on the face of the earth. And it starts with people like you and me. Welcome to Liberty Roundtable Live. It is the day after Thanksgiving. How thankful are we really, I would humbly ask? Are we thankful enough to treat others as we would want to be treated? Let's start with that and introduce our guest. Her name is Michelle Steeb. MichelleSteeb.com. And uh, she's the author of a new book, Answers Behind the Red Door. Now, she says this, homelessness is not a problem that will go away until we finally attack it head on and address the real underlying issues. One size fits all doesn't work. That's the point. She's got an incredible bio for over 12 years. Michelle served as executive director of St. John's Program for Real Change, transforming what was once an ordinary 30-day emergency shelter plan, and she turned it into a robust, comprehensive 18-month program supporting homeless women and children to overcome the very root of the cycle of poverty. In 2012, she was appointed by California Governor Jerry Brown to serve on the board of California's, what do they call it, Prison Industry Authority, serving on the policy board to end homelessness, a huge task. She led the effort launching numerous programs, such as Sacramento's Steps Forward and the Stepping Stone Task Force. Ladies and gentlemen, we got a lot of work to do, and she's just the lady to talk about it. The day after Thanksgiving seems appropriate to me. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for having uh, me on and uh, for illuminating uh, this this national crisis that we face. First off, I know we've talked about who you are professionally. No doubt your credentials are there, but tell me who you are as a person. Growing up, how did this become such an issue for you? Wow. Uh, so I grew up uh, the uh, daughter of a single mother. Um, who had her own struggles, uh, married an abusive man, um, and then uh, after they divorced uh, an alcoholic, uh, my first father was um, not in the picture uh, just because he was working in another state. Uh, my father was not in the picture. Um, 
anyway, so, you know, it, it's not the, it was not my life's work to go into this field. I actually went into politics and then uh, through my church got appointed to the board of St. John's which, as you shared at that point, was a 30-day emergency shelter for women and children. And after a a crisis, about six months later at the shelter, uh, I was asked to step in and uh, fill the leadership void for a month. My current employer gave me that month uh, as time off, and I never looked back. I fell in love with the work. Uh, of helping women and children struggling with homelessness, certainly, but really the the struggles that were leading them to homelessness, addiction, uh, mental illness, criminal history, lack of high school diploma or formal uh, education or work training, all of these issues, uh, I realized, were, were plaguing these women. And with uh with about within about one week a woman named Shelley came in with her two boys to the emergency shelter and a couple days later her sister Katie came in with her daughter Tori i was shocked when i learned that Katie and Shelley were sisters but the bigger shock was about 15 years earlier they had actually lived at the emergency shelter with their mom And that's when I realized we can't just give someone a roof and give them a meal for 30 days and expect that we're, I mean, it's important to do that, but but we really needed to help them address those uh, issues that result in generational impact, uh, generational homelessness and, and poverty. So we began building. Uh, so like I said, I never went back to my my job at the California Chamber of Commerce. I uh, stayed at St. John's and and really was focused on building out what is now an 18-month program that helps these women and children change their lives. It helps them address their addiction, address their mental illness, uh, helps them their high school diplomas, it helps them gain work training, and now uh, one of the three social enterprises we operate, two two restaurants and a daycare program. But it helps them address everything they need to address so they can live on their own. They can live independently. The moms can become the primary providers for their children, and it's been very successful. Uh, But... I it, it, it it's still a it's still an ongoing uh, building process. I'm no longer there. My husband took a job in Texas uh, about a year and a half ago, so I now live there. But it really helped propel me that experience uh, to write this book. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Michelle or Michelle Steve with us. Her website michellesteve.com. We're talking about her new book, Answers Behind the Red Door. Battling America's Homeless Epidemic. We've got a whole lot more to talk about in seconds with Michelle on your radio.
Now, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Sir Galahad, what seems to be the problem? Well, it's just not working. She's been very unrealistic. Really? Ever since he rescued me from the dragon, we've been drifting apart. That's not true. We were supposed to live happily ever after. Now, this isn't a fairy tale. <laughs> At first, he was gallant and chivalrous, opening doors for me, holding my chair, taking my arm. All right, I'm not as young as I used to be. He simply isn't the man who swept me off my feet. Well, you're not as young as you used to be. <laughs> Mr. Sir Galahad, maybe if you started by just holding Mrs. Sir Galahad's hand when you're together. Really? Yes, try it. Okay. All right, go on, take your hand. Careful, little oil. Marriage. You're never too far apart when you're still holding hands. From your neighbors, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, look into each other's eyes. That's right, raise your visor. Oh, the blue dude. Yeah. For more tips on strengthening your marriage, visit family.mormon.org. I reinstated a policy first put in place by President Ronald Reagan, the Mexico City policy. I strongly supported the House of Representatives' pain-capable bill, which would end painful late-term abortions nationwide. And I call upon the Senate to pass this important law and send it to my desk for signing. We are protecting the sanctity of life and the family as the foundation of our society. And most importantly of all, it is the gift of life itself. That is why we march. That is why we pray. And that is why we declare that America's future will be filled with goodness, peace, joy, dignity, and life for every child of God. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Michelle Steve. Her website, michellesteve.com. We're talking about one size shoe does not fit all. Answers behind the red door. We're talking about homelessness, ladies and gentlemen. And the first thing that I think Americans need to really understand about this is, look, there's not just a single issue. There's not just a someone's lazy. There's not just a, oh, uh, you know. One answer, one solution can work everywhere in the country or work for all kinds of situations. It isn't like that. That's the first thing to understand, isn't it, Michelle? Yes. It's, I'm so glad you bring this up. In fact, you know, these, as I've described a little earlier, the, the people who enter into homelessness enter in for, first of all, there's about a million to two million people, uh, depending on which definition of homelessness you're using in the United States who are struggling with homelessness. Now, what, I want you to explain that because this is important to understand. Which definition you're using, uh, all circumstances aren't the same, just like all solutions aren't the same, right? That's exactly right. And and HUD, which is the largest funder and policymaker uh, for homelessness, they're at the federal level, the housing uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Their definition of homelessness is incredibly narrow, especially as it relates to families. According to HUD, there's about 570,000 Americans struggling with homelessness on any given day. If you are to look at the Department of Education's definition of homelessness, again, especially as it relates to families, 
they're estimating that there's almost 2 million children, K through 12 children, that are struggling with homelessness in America. Their definition is much more realistic in terms of a family that is struggling with homelessness. And so the estimates are are all over. We've been appealing to the federal government for years to reconcile the definition so we have an appropriate baseline of how many people are, are struggling with homelessness in the United States. But that has yet to be done. Now, the average American is saying, well, wait a minute, if somebody has a house and they're not homeless, if they don't, then they are. And isn't it that simple? And the answer is no, it's not. No, and, and as it relates to families, I'll give you a couple of examples. So if a family is couch surfing or floor surfing or garage surfing, meaning they're using a friend's couch or floor or garage uh, until they can get into appropriate shelter, they are uh, not considered homeless by HUD. They are by the Department of Education. But here's an even uh, greater example. If you're a family and you choose to buy a motel room for the night, HUD says you're not homeless. But if HUD provides you a government voucher for that hotel room, HUD says you are homeless. So that definition really, really matters. There's some other quirks in it um, as it relates to other segments of the homeless population, but the families in particular are grossly undercounted under HUD's uh, definition. And not only is there the government definitions of HUD, the education department, et cetera, et cetera, there's all kinds of private sector definitions that relate to this as well in terms of uh, employment, in terms of uh, different states and different municipalities, uh, your ability to maybe get um, support for food or support for a place to stay or medical care. I mean, the, the, this is, is the more you dig in, the more complicated it gets. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to understand every nuance of it, but we need to understand the scope of the issue, right? Yes, we do, which which is why we need to come together on on that definition so we have an appropriate baseline from which we can operate. Do you have proposed definitions we could use? We have definitely proposed definitions uh, that we talk about in the book. Uh, as it relates to families, we believe the Department of Education's definition is much more realistic. I will tell you the program I ran, St. John's in Sacramento, about 60% of the women and children who came in were in fact couch surfing or floor surfing or garage surfing with friends until they could get into our program because our program was so impacted. It has a couple month long wait list. So HUD did not does not consider those families homeless. However, we absolutely do. And we would bring them in. And even though HUD wouldn't provide funding for them, we raise money from alternative sources to be able to serve them. Now, this is interesting because on one hand, you could say they're not homeless because of the kindness of a loved one, a friend, a family member, a relative, a somebody. And I'm grateful for their support so that a lot of these people um, – may not be into the program yet, or the program would be even quadruple overwhelmed. Uh, but I bring this up highlighting the point that, hey, unless something happens drastically, a big change for them, that's where they'll be. And at least in medicine, we want to first do no harm and we say, hey, how can we uh, avert the problem? Uh, what do they say? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure kind of an idea. Um, this is where they're headed if we're not 
cognizant of this, right? Yes, and and I'll tell you as you know what motivates these families. First of all, no mother wants to be sleeping outside with her children, and not only for fear for them, but fear you know for the entire family not being able to protect uh, themselves against you know people with bad intentions, but also. Child Protective Services, if they find out that you are sleeping outside and they can locate you, they will take your, they will remove your children. So a, a mother absolutely will do anything she can to avoid sleeping outside with her kids. And finding a, a, a garage or a floor or a couch uh, is the best way for her to go until she can get into appropriate shelter. Ladies and gentlemen, this issue is serious, and it ranges from uh, people who may not completely be homeless, meaning they might have the ability to stay with a relative long term, but they don't have the ability to support themselves uh, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's health. Sometimes it's education. Sometimes it's nobody can watch their children. They don't have any way for daycare or whatever else. It, ra- it follows the whole gamut of circumstances and situations, and that's why Michelle's saying, hey, one size does not fit all here. That does not work. Uh, We need longer-term solutions than emergency shelters of 30 days. I have watched a lot of videos and done some studying uh, in Las Vegas, for example. There's even underground cities, people who live in the sewers. Uh, And there are children there. There are women there. There are um, children of God there, is the way I would put it, that, you know what? Um, They didn't get there oftentimes by choice. Uh, Oftentimes it's circumstantial in nature. And my goal isn't to really tell you how bad it is. Uh, and spend a lot of time on that because I think we want to focus on solutions. But I do really want people to understand this is a serious situation. And the more desperate the circumstances become, the less people want to talk about it, Michelle. Well, it's it's overwhelming, right? I mean, so uh, you mentioned one size fits all. So in the last administration in 2011 to 2013, they So when you say last, out. meaning Obama administration? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yes. So uh, they rolled out a one-size-fits-all solution to homelessness that they called Housing First. And it was a solution that was developed for a very narrow segment of the homeless population, the the very chronically mentally ill, addicted street homeless. But they took that policy developed for that very narrow segment, and they said, hey, if it works for one, it'll work for all. And they rolled it out as a one-size-fits-all solution. Since that time, since 2011 to 2013, oh, and by the way, under this policy, they promised homelessness would end in a decade. There's actually some promises documented that it would end in five years. Since that time, homelessness has gone up by 16% throughout the country. Unsheltered homelessness, meaning people on the streets, has gone up around 22% across the country in spite of a 200% funding increase over the same period. It has been a national failure. It's failed everywhere that it's been implemented, including in the state of Utah, including in the state of California, but it's failed everywhere across the nation. And we've got to change this policy. This policy does not, it was never intended for everyone struggling with homelessness. It hasn't worked. And we need to recognize that 
we need a very, very different approaches for the numbers of people who have entered and or are struggling with homelessness. Answers behind the red door, ladies and gentlemen, will give you a glimpse into exactly what's happening and most importantly, solutions to make a difference. That's what we want to focus on today. There are solutions, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a lost cause. It can be overwhelming and seem so intimidating because what do you do? But there are people who have experience who can provide leadership. Michelle Steeb is one of them. MichelleSteeb.com. And we're going to talk about the name of her book first and then get into a lot of the solutions coming coming up straight ahead you are listening to the one and only liberty roundtable live exposing corruption informing citizens pursuing liberty you're listening to liberty news radio USA Radio News with Lance Pride. President Trump said Thursday evening that coronavirus vaccines will be delivered by early as next week. The whole world is suffering and we are rounding the curve, Trump said. And the vaccines are being delivered next week or the week after. Trump noted that frontline workers, medical personnel, and senior citizens would be the vaccine's first recipients. John Gilbert Getty, the grandson of oil tycoon J. Paul Getty, has died. He was 52. John, a musician, died on Friday in San Antonio, Texas. John leaves behind his daughter, Ivy, his brothers, Peter and Billy. John's mother, Ann Gilbert Getty, passed in September. Let's take a look at those Thanksgiving football scores. Texas beat the Lions 41-25, to and Washington beat up Dallas 41-16. to Star quarterback Lamar Jackson tested positive for COVID-19 and will not play on Sunday against the Steelers if the game does not get shut down. Lamar Jackson is the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. USA Radio News. President Trump has exposed the big media, phony polls, voter fraud, fake news, and everyone is turning away from Fox News. If you're tired of Fox, you can now watch Newsmax TV. President Trump is tweeting about Newsmax all the time. Millions are tuning in, and Newsmax is breaking records. Watch Newsmax TV every night for Greg Kelly, Sean Spicer, Chris Salcedo, and more. Plus, get the latest from Dick Morris, Rudy Giuliani, Michelle Malkin, Alan Dershowitz, Diamond and Silk, and Mike Huckabee. President Trump says he watches Newsmax and likes it. Newsmax is on all major cable systems. Check your cable guide. Also get Newsmax TV for free on Roku, Zumo, YouTube, Pluto, Apple TV, and even smart TVs like Samsung Plus and LG. Download the free Newsmax TV app on your iPhone or Android and watch us anytime, anywhere. Newsmax is real news for real people. Hawaii Congressperson Tulsi Gabbard called on President Trump to pardon National Security Agency whistleblower Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. So first I introduced HRS 1162 with my colleague Congressman Matt Gates. that very simply calls on our government to drop all charges against Edward Snowden for the actions that he took in the public interest to expose a mass government surveillance program on all Americans that violates our privacy and civil liberties and that courts deemed illegal more than once. 
Now, Snowden, Assange, and others are being prosecuted under this same Espionage Act. Ms. Gabbard is introducing legislation that will allow whistleblowers a chance to defend their actions in court. That is not allowed with the current law. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, is considering shortening the number of days it recommends a person self-quarantine after possible exposure to the coronavirus. A top agency official told the Wall Street Journal the CDC hopes more people would comply with quarantine guidelines if the time is shortened to 7 to 10 days, followed by a negative test. USA Radio News. All right, Michelle Steve with us, ladies and gentlemen. MichelleSteve.com answers behind the red door battling America's homelessness and the epidemic that we face in America. The reason I separate homeless and epidemic is because, you know what, it's not just their problem. Ladies and gentlemen, if we believe in the Savior's admonition, it's all of our problems. Uh, we need to care about those around us. We need to minister to those who are suffering. Uh, that is kind of one of the first admonitions that Americans have been so known for. But what's happened? Homelessness has gotten much, much worse, partly to policies for government. But I'm not here really just to blame government. It's all of us, folks, that need to take this in hand and do something about it in a serious way. Let's start with the name of the book, Answers Behind the Red Door. Michelle, what's the red door? So as we built out St. John's from a 30-day emergency shelter to an 18-month program to help uh, women and children change their lives, our name, St. John's Shelter, was no longer relevant. So we brought in uh, a friend, actually my co-author of this book, Answers Behind the Red Door, who had expertise in, in uh, naming and branding, and we went through a, a process, and we decided that our name would be St. John's Program for Real Change, and we chose the red door as our logo, but it had incredible uh, incredible symbolism behind it. So the door, in and of itself, you know, is you you actively open it up and shut it behind you. You cross over its threshold, and you're in a new place. And so the door has, you know, symbolism um, that was very meaningful in that way. But the red door actually has biblical uh, meaning. It was the red door was a place where people could escape during slavery times. And it also has meaning in feng shui, as you may know. So the red door became our uh, our core, who who we were. In fact, when we uh, launched this uh, new name, we painted all of our doors, the the bedroom doors. We uh, housed about 250 women and children on any given day. So we painted all the bedroom doors red, and our front door. Uh, at St. John's became red, too. So it's something we live and breathe and uh, was very uh, much uh, the, the only name we could have given this book was uh, was Answers Behind the Red Door because we learned a lot in our 13 years about what really helps people get on their feet and be able to become self-sustaining. All right. So the red door really uh, is the gateway to solutions is what my research kind of uh, highlights is, you know what? We can open the red door for people. There are solutions, answers behind that red door. Everyone can play a role in this. 
the roles differ based on your life, your circumstances, your finances, your etc. But the red door has answers. Uh, what we need is people to collaborate on being willing to open the red door together, right? Absolutely. And, and I loved your point. It's opening it together. It's not something we do for them. They need to participate in, in this process as well. And right now, the policy that we have, this Housing First policy I mentioned in the last segment, it basically says you don't have to do anything. You don't have to, we're going to put you in a house for life. You don't need to be sober. You don't need to do work training. You don't need to participate in case management and setting goals. And you don't have to do anything. Your house will be yours for life, subsidized for life. And that is a huge, huge uh, problem in this policy because we're not expecting the homeless to participate. And, and they need to participate just as much, if not more, than we do in helping them move forward in their life and, and emerge from homelessness permanently. So we're talking about the first understanding is we don't want to hand out, we want to hand up. We don't uh, need to um, ignore responsibility. We don't need to pretend that we can sweep the problem under the rug. But what it starts with is partnership, leadership, responsibility. Uh, it starts with an understanding of, hey, you know what? How do we change the person inside so they have the ability to continue the change outside your thoughts that's exactly correct and and again the the, the large it, as it relates to st john's the program i ran most of the people are struggling with addiction and mental illness turns out that's those numbers are also reflected in the overall homeless population so there's a new uh, relatively new report out of the ucla policy lab that shows that 75% of the homeless are struggling with addiction, 78% with mental illness, yet our Housing First policy does not require, does not allow for the requirement of the homeless addressing those issues. It, it, we call it a straitjacket to staying in poverty and homelessness because you're basically saying at the point at which someone enters the homelessness system, that's the point at which they will stay. We're going to keep them in their whatever that state is, and it's just so horrible and it's so uh, bonding. <laughs> it keeps it, 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 it. It's very oppressive system. And what we're saying is, allow them to participate, help them address their underlying issues, and let them be free once and for all from homelessness and the bondage of it. Now, let me ask you a couple of quick questions, and, and I'm hoping for quick answers. And then what I want to do is get to how we help, how we do it. And you've got some examples of some, some camps and longer-term solutions that work that we're going to get into. Uh, but what percent of homeless are men versus women, adults? Well, the estimates, and it, de again, it depends on the definition you're using, but sure. the estimates are about 60 to 70 percent are men. Are men. But the, are men, but that number is growing. I mean, the number of uh, women, single mother-led families, is rapidly growing. Again, depends on the definition you're using. HUD says family homelessness is going down, but we 
see something very, very different on the ground level. Yeah, what I want to do is use your definitions because I'm not really into the debate or the differences in government departments. What I really want to do is address the problem. And I don't want to use a broad definition that's so belligerent everybody's homeless by any means, but I do want to use a realistic definition. And I think those in the private sector who see this uh, close up and personal are some of the best people to uh, know. In other words, an arm length uh, Washington (laughs) bureaucrat probably doesn't really have a clue, whereas somebody on the ground who cares does have a clue. So I want to use that kind of definition. A lot of them are men. Uh, Why? Is it because they've been in the military or a lot of veterans? Is it because... Uh, of drugs? What 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 are the cores? Well, again, there's so many people that uh, enter into uh, homelessness. It, there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to your question. There definitely is an issue with people returning from the military. There is an issue of, of people who grew up in uh, the, the cycle of poverty and homelessness. We're seeing a lot more generational impacts in the current numbers of of, of homeless, meaning they struggled with homelessness when they were uh, young children, and they're repeating what they, you know, what they knew, what they were taught. But I will also say trauma has become a real um, interesting factor uh, that they've started to take a look at in the last decade in particular. Children who experience trauma, who don't have the opportunity to heal from that trauma. So that could be a domestic violence relationship. That could be a parent who was an addict. That could be a parent who was abusive. If they don't have the opportunity to heal from that, they become abusive, addicted, homeless uh, adults. And we're starting to see data that shows the dramatic impacts of childhood trauma that's left unaddressed uh, in terms of fueling the, the homelessness numbers today. All right, this might seem like a clown question, but I certainly don't mean it to be. How many who are homeless would like to remain homeless? In other words, is this a choice people are making uh, where they intend to be this way and that's what they prefer? Well, what I will say is if you look at, for instance, the, the I don't believe that to be the case, but if you look at people struggling with mental illness or people struggling with addiction, there is actually a disease that starts with an A. It's hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> but there is a, a legitimate disease that people struggling with mental illness and addiction do not have the ability to be self-aware. They're in a fog. And they may be choosing this, but it's based largely on their fog and not on if they that fog were removed on the kind of life they'd like to live. It, it is very, very scary on this street. And I asked that, that question for that very reason. It almost reminds me of a drug addict. They're happy and they don't want to quit their drugs. However, if they can get away from the drugs long enough, their viewpoints change. Their aspirations change. Their desires change. That, I think, is a critical understanding. We'll talk more with Michelle Steeb. MichelleSteeb.com in seconds. Answers behind the red door. As a parent, is receiving a faith-based, character-focused education for your children difficult to find? Do you believe that godly principles should be a central component in your child's education? Imagine a school where faith and integrity are at its center, where heritage and responsibility instill character. For over 40 years, American Heritage School has been educating both hearts and minds, bringing out academic excellence. 
This is the school where character and embracing the providence of a living God are fundamental, where students' national test scores average near the 90th percentile. With American Heritage School's Advanced Distance Education Program, distance is no longer an issue. With an accredited LDS-oriented curriculum from kindergarten through 12th grade, your children can attend from anywhere in the world. American Heritage School will prepare your child for more than a job. It will prepare them for life. To learn more, visit American-Heritage.org. That's American-Heritage.org. As the United States boldly stepped forward in the glorious light provided by its new constitution in 1787, the nations of the earth were in awe of the newfound strength and hope of this free land. Today, the nation stands at a crossroads. A divergence from the original intent put forth in the United States Constitution has brought grave threats to our beloved nation. A miracle is needed if the United States is to survive. That miracle is again the pure application of the United States Constitution. I'm Scott Bradley. In my To Preserve the Nation book and lecture series, I bring forth truths that will help raise up a new generation of statesmen like those noble Americans who founded this land. Vigorous application of these principles will invigorate and restore the nation, and we may become again the freest, most prosperous, most respected, and happiest nation on earth. Visit topreservethenation.com to begin that restoration. All right, ladies and gentlemen, can the power of love save us? I know the power of love backed by service certainly can. Welcome to Liberty Roundtable Live. Michelle Steeb with us. Her website, michellesteeb.com. Her book's available everywhere, Amazon and all over the place. She's author of the book, Answers, Behind the Red Door, a very symbolic title to say the least, ladies and gentlemen. Battling America's Homeless Epidemic. Homelessness is not a one-size-fits-all scenario, ladies and gentlemen. It's complex. And a lot of times, you know, people say, well, I've talked to homeless people. They don't want to change. They like it there. They don't want to. And uh, there's an illness that starts with an A that that highlights this reality. And I asked that question that might sound like a clown question at first. Hey, you know, don't these people just love it and want to be there? And the answer is they kind of do, uh, but yet it's an illness in and of itself. And oftentimes... Uh, that's at the core of their inability to change, and people don't realize that it is a literal illness, uh, and uh, they need help with that on top of everything else, Michelle. Yes, they need uh, help in becoming self-aware and seeing the kind of life they're living, and they also need help in opening their eyes to what's possible. I can't tell you how many women would come into St. John's, and they were their their past was their vision for the future. They had never had anyone open their eyes to taking their kids on vacation, to live, you know, working a productive day and being able to take care of their kids on their own without the aid of a government check. They had no idea what it would be like to live life sober and completely aware and present. And we have to help them see that. We have to help them see what's possible uh, in their future when their when their uh, vision is so limited by looking in the rearview mirror. All right, let's talk about the solutions and the examples. We've mentioned that there are failures aplenty. There are a lot of money spent aplenty without the uh, solutions that we're actually seeking for. You know, the answer is to turn to uh, really, in my opinion, a, a think tank, if you will, 
of people who are on the ground who really know, who have been there, who have seen it, who have watched success, who have watched failure. Uh, and that's really what your book highlights, right? Yes, it highlights how people can, how people have moved from one of the most horrible places they've ever been in their lives to live, living productive lives, being able to take care of themselves and their children. And, and I really want to stress this. There is so much hope that we can turn this situation around, but we really need to do it one person, one individual, one story at a time. Amen to the one story at a time. Every case is unique. Every individual, in my view, is a child of God, and uh, God knows them, and he sent us to help them. Uh, so the question is, how do we take the politics out of this? How do we take money or credit or fame or uh, out of it and become selfless to say, let's work on this together? That's really, at least in my opinion, from a societal reality, what we've got to get done first, right? Yes, and in fact, uh, this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. Uh, unfortunately, policy, government policy, has driven uh, this issue, this one-size-fits-all policy. It's driven the crisis. So we need to get all leaders, Republican, Democrat, independent, male, female, old, young, we need them all to come together to say there is no one-size-fits-all approach to homelessness. And it definitely needs to include helping people heal on an individual letter level so they can become free and, and productive. Now, I will say, not everyone is going to achieve the same uh, level of productivity uh, because everyone's very unique and everyone's uh, got their you know, own maybe physical limitations or per perhaps psychological limitations, but people can grow. They can become more productive. They can become free, and we need to help them do that. And no matter what, we don't need to look at it as uh, this is a, something that you wake up and solve today. This is not an event. Uh, this is really a quest that we're on. And even if we don't make things perfect for everyone, we can make things better for everyone, right? We can, absolutely. We have to actually help them see, like I was talking about earlier, that there can be something very different for them in their future, but they need to participate in this. They need to want to uh, to try and achieve that future, and we need to help them in every way possible do that, and that starts with an expectation of growth. That's how society functions. We all are growing every day in order to better ourselves and to better our communities and the homeless are no exception and it's really crazy to me to see you know i was seeing governor newsom announce uh the latest curfew and he excluded the homeless and my point was why would you exclude them let them try and participate in this in keeping themselves safe and keeping their communities safe maybe we're a little bit more forgiving with them if they can't do uh, the job that that we're that you know Californians are being asked to do, but don't exclude them. Don't treat them like second class citizens. Treat them like one of us because they are one of us. All right, there are solutions on the ground that you guys have been working with and have tried, and there's a proposal for the homeless epidemic. That is specifically whether or not sanctioned homeless camps 
are a good idea. So in Salt Lake City, they backed this, you know, uh, first everybody gets a home plan. It was an absolute failure. Uh, and now they're rethinking it. There's a big article uh, in uh, what, the largest newspaper in Utah about this, talking about other solutions that have been tried with success, right? Yes, there are several uh, examples that have been tried with success. I talk about in the book is Pinellas Hope in um, Clearwater, Florida. Uh, they've done a very, very great job of building a program that helps those struggling with homelessness to grow. It looks very different for each individual in the program, but it's all about their growth. And I am such a believer that we need to, in homelessness, but but in life too, meet people where they are and help them walk along the path uh, wherever that may be. A sanctioned uh, encampment can be a very, very good place to launch people on the path to growth. But it needs to have rules and it needs to have uh, a, a focus on growth because that's what society is. Society is focused on growth. It has rules. In order to live in society, you have to follow a set of rules. You may have less rules at the beginning, uh, depending on where someone is, but they need to follow rules. You can't exempt them from that. All right. So the the application is very different from individual to individual, uh, from family to family. But the principles that guide solutions, there are principles that can be applied here that are time tested. Right. Yes. We talk about um, our values at St. John's throughout the book. And each story was chosen. uh, Each success story was chosen based on an exemplification of uh, a different value. So growth is, is one, love is another, community is another, effort is another, and um, there's many in there, and that's one of the reasons we wrote this book, is there are um, answers, and we lay them out very clearly in, uh, in that book. All right, let's talk a little bit about these homeless camps. There's a, in the uh, article that I read about this in the Deseret News, there's a photo of a guy by the name of Donald, and then his nickname is Hippie, Donald Hippie Montgomery. And he plays his guitar near a camp in Austin, Texas. It's called Esperanza, which I guess means hope in Spanish, right? Yes. All right, so he's there, uh, and he never thought he'd be there that long, but now he's on a quest to kind of help people. Let's talk a little bit about what these camps mean. Uh, What do we have? We have governments that allow these camps to exist first. Well, uh, government leaders have um, changed their mind on these camps uh, quite often. Uh, Libby Sanchez out of Oakland was a huge promoter of uh, what they call uh, unsanctioned encampments uh, in that part of the country. And uh, there were so many problems. About two years later, she reversed her position. A lot of uh, government officials, uh, officials are back and forth on encampments. I am uh, a believer in sanctioned encampments that have, like we talked about earlier, a focus on growth, a focus, you know, some rules, maybe not, you know, uh, as many as we had in St. John's, but we need to meet, like, like we discussed, we need to meet people where they are. And people coming off the streets or off the river, they are used to no rules. So we 
that's not normal either. We need to give them some rules, but we need to probably lighten up at the beginning and get them comfortable. And then once they're more comfortable, uh, you know, have more expectations of, of growth and, and of following rules. All right. We're going to take this into the next hour a little bit, ladies and gentlemen, because I want to understand what a sanctioned camp is versus a, I guess, the opposite to a non-sanctioned camp. I want to know about what we can do to encourage solutions. And we find that these camps do work. But what you can't do is you can't, one, set up a camp with all kinds of forced wrong principles involved. You also can't set up a camp with hands off and expect it to work. You can't just vote a camp into existence and then leave it alone and three years later go, oh, this is, this is horrible. This is full of crime and problems, and this isn't working at all. You've got to put together a formula, ladies and gentlemen, that works. You've got to put together uh, time-tested principles that work and rules, as Michelle has uh, brought forth, is one of them. Now, the rules might get a little bit uh, <clears throat> more rigorous over time. You might uh, create grace periods for rules. You might, but yet at the end of the day, without those guidelines, without learning to walk within the lines, you'll never be successful. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Steve's website, michellesteve.com, and she's author of a book, Answers Behind the Red Door. And we're talking about homelessness and battling homelessness. It's become an epidemic in America, and it's getting worse by the day. I don't care what the government or anybody else tells you. It is getting worse by the day. And especially with the coronavirus, it's becoming very volatile, to say the least. It's a situation where people are afraid they're going to lose their children, so you don't know about it. Uh, people are uh, in situations maybe where they're not, quote, completely homeless based on the definition right this second, but they're certainly headed there. And how do we do an ounce of prevention uh, being worth a pound of cure? How do we work on this uh, ahead of time in some cases and in the middle of, of it in other cases? And Michelle's basically saying, meet the people where they are first. Work with them. Open the red door. Find ways to help them where they are. Every situation looks different. Sometimes it's education. Sometimes it's mental illness. Sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it's abuse. All of it equates to fear. All of it equates to mistrust. All of it equates to loneliness. We're calling on the American people for help, ladies and gentlemen. One of the first camps was started in Austin, Texas. And it's a middle approach between a Republican governor and progressive local leaders. Wow, people are working together. That's where we want to start next hour. We'll get into the details, into the camps, into what you can personally do, my fellow Americans. MichelleSteve.com, her website. You're listening to Liberty Roundtable Live, ladies and gentlemen. The day after Thanksgiving, you're probably so full you can't stand it. That's not true for everybody. Let's be aware of that and see what we can do, shall we? All right, hang tight. Hour one in the can, hour two coming up. God save the Republic of the United States of America. Atop the Rocky Mountains, the crossroads of the West. West. You are listening to the Liberty Roundtable Radio Talk radio Show. Talk show.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are live the day after Thanksgiving. This is the broadcast for November 27th in the year of our Lord, 2020. This is our two of two, and our goal always to protect life, liberty, and property, and to promote God, family, and country on your radio. We're talking about a very serious issue. We talked about it all hour last hour. We highlighted the problems, the reasons, the circumstances. We're talking to Michelle Steed, who has politely agreed to stay with us a little bit this hour. She's the author of a book called Answers Behind the Red Door, Battling America's Homelessness. Homeless isn't a problem that'll go away until we find solutions. And hey, the one-size-fits-all idea simply does not work. The homeless epidemic is serious. Are sanctioned homeless camps a good idea? What are the solutions? And we find that solutions are found by those on the ground working in this day-to-day who have good, open, kind hearts, who don't have any agenda. They're not in it for the money. They're in it because they care about others. And they see people uh, who oftentimes their lives never change because we don't take the right approach. But oftentimes, if we open the red door for them, if they open the red door and we help them, okay, it's not a one or the other. It's a together we create solutions. It's not an event, ladies and gentlemen. This is a serious issue. This has not been uh, an issue that all of a sudden just popped up in a day. It's been decades in the making of the situation we're in. And it's going to take a while to work our way out of it. Promises of a quick fix are bogus. But there are real solutions. MichelleSteeb.com is where you can get her book. Amazon.com is where you can get her book. Answers Behind the Red Door. So let's talk about this. Are sanctioned camps a good idea? Right at the end of the last hour, we mentioned that, you know what? These camps are a great idea if you set rules and expectations and there's guidelines. In other words, you can't just set it up like a top and spin it and then walk away. Uh, You cannot set it up with too many rules or it's destined for failure because folks will want (laughs) to not stay there. They'll find the outside much more pleasant at first. But there are answers, and we can put together these camps And these camps can be a good idea if we follow principles. Michelle? Absolutely. And and as I mentioned in the book, uh, one example that I uh, give of a sanction encampment that is very, very successful is Pinellas Hope in Clearwater, Florida. It's a camp that is focused on helping uh, those struggling with homelessness to grow, to address their underlying issues, to become productive, but they meet people where they are. People who are coming off the streets are used to being, uh, number one, uh, mirrored in their addiction and and mental illness. And so to slowly help them see uh, a life beyond what they've known is really, really important. But it's also important to understand that they've been living without, quote unquote, without rules. Uh, at least they think they've been living without rules and or we have not been enforcing those rules as a society. So we really need to meet them where they are and help uh, bring them along the path of growth to something, uh, you know, very, very different in their future than they've experienced in their past. The average person is thinking now, I appreciate it, Michelle. I'm glad you're on the front lines. I'm glad for you to work on a project like this. Good for you. It is important. I help uh, in my church with a little bit of money sometimes uh, or or whatever. And and I appreciate any efforts anybody makes, right? But how can we be more interactive and involved and help? And, you know, what can the average American do? 
So, and I wrote this book for this particular reason. Uh, as I was traveling across the country, personal and pro- professional reasons, uh, and people would ask, what do you do? And I would explain to them what I did. It didn't matter who they were, old, young, Republican, Democrat, male, female, they all said, why are we in this crisis? What has fueled this? Because, you know, pre-COVID, we were in a very uh, strong economy uh, by most measures. So what was fueling this? And I uh, dove into uh, that when I left California and moved to Texas and began to really understand the policies underlying this. So first and foremost, uh, what I would say to people is the answers are there. There's a lot of ideas for people who want to get involved and make a difference. But the first and foremost thing we need to do is recognize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and we need to work with our government leaders to understand that and to change policy. The policy right now keeps people locked into the state of homelessness and addiction and uh, mental illness. Uh, It does not help them emerge from it. So we need to understand there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to support government leaders in changing policy. We need to not just support them. We need to strongly encourage them to do it because right now so many of them have bought into this. The the problem is exploding, and no one's holding them accountable for changing policy so that they change the situation. Right now, people need to look to their counties, Largely, counties are responsible for the implementation of health and human services, including homelessness. They need to be looking to their county officials. The counties are the ones holding the reins of responsibility. They need to be looking to them to make policy changes, and they need to demand results. They need to demand ongoing reports and results, and that will make a huge difference. I know a lot of people are very interested in volunteering. We talk very specifically about volunteering for programs that encourage growth. I want to make this very clear because a lot of our audience, um, you know, we don't believe government's the answer for a lot of things. And, And I agree with that. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to spiral down into those details except to say, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that governments are so, uh, responsible and accountable and kind of at the driver's seat in this county by county is because they're the ones that make the zoning and the regulations and the rules and the guidelines. If I wanted to start a homeless camp tomorrow and help a lot of people, hey, I've got a lot of red tape to deal with. I can't just roll out there and do that and and have everybody just be clapping and praising me for my volunteerism. It isn't that simple, right, Michelle? You're very right. And and HUD, which is the Department of Housing and Urban Urban Development at the federal level, is the largest sole funder of a single funder rather of homelessness so yes i appreciate the the need uh for you know churches and the broader community to get involved but we cannot uh on our own at least overnight produce that level of funding to really help the homeless we need to work with government to help turn this situation around Right. How you mentioned the last administration, I uh, mean, the Obama administration created a one size fits all. It was an abject failure, for to say the least, uh, as Donald Trump. And, and I, I don't want to make this political, but I want to understand something. Uh, it, it, Donald Trump, has he just carried that on? How has Ben Carson done as leader of HUD? Is it different? Give us a kind of an update. Well, 
the president actually took note of the homeless situation in New York and L.A. Uh, last year, I think in 2019, and really started to pay attention, actually, when Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, did a lot of uh, programs uh, highlighting the uh, the homelessness crisis. And he and, and Secretary Carson started to work with uh, the mayor of Los Angeles in particular, who reached out to them uh, via a letter that's uh, that's available on the Internet uh, and said, you know, we can't do this. We need your help. And so the secretary and the president were working with Mayor Garcetti. Obviously, um, there's some changes going on right now. So uh, I don't know where that's going to go, but I will say at uh, the federal level usage, which is the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness, uh, usage and HUD worked together to compile data, uh, uh, homelessness data over the, the last decade. And they just released a report. It's called Expanding the Toolbox. You can Google it at, um, you know, you can Google it and, and pull it up. And what they're showing is what I shared uh, at the beginning of the segment that homelessness has spiraled out of control. It's grown by uh, 16% across the country, despite a 200% spending increase. And they make some recommendations, many of which we include in the book, not because we collaborated, but because they're very practical, you know, solutions that we've learned from being on the on the uh, ground level. So I encourage people to, to look at that report. I encourage people to purchase Answers Behind the Red Door because the answers are there. And we're very, very prescriptive in terms of what people can do on their own. All right. I've done my best to kind of cover uh, what I think is really an understanding and importance, a solution, point people to the right directions. Michelle Steeb is the um, website that you want to go to. Uh, yes. S-T-E-E-B. S-T-E-E-B dot com. Michelle Steeb dot com. Michelle has one L, right? Yes. All right, and you can go there and you can get her book, Answers Behind the Red Door. Uh, and there's really a bunch of solutions there. It's it's a really it's a plea, it's a cry out to the American people to say, set aside everything and let's get together on this thing. Let's open the red door together. Let's close it behind those who go through it voluntarily and let's support them in every way we possibly can. And it's working with government, it's private sector, it's churches, it's everyone to the roundtable for solutions, Michelle. Yes, and that is so important. We are all needed to turn this crisis around. We all need to come together and work together. Michelle, thank you so much. We'll have you back. Thank you so much, Sam. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Likewise. All right, there she goes, ladies and gentlemen, doing a phenomenal job. This is not an issue to be ignored, folks. Uh, I, it's our prayer that you don't just hear a radio show and go, oh, that's horrible, and let it go. That you actually do something about it. Wherever you are, stand. Okay, girls, about finished with your lesson on money. Daddy, what is a buy-sell spread for gold coins? Well, when you sell a gold coin to a coin shop that's worth, say, $1,200, you don't actually get $1,200. But don't worry, we're members of UPMA now, so we don't have to worry about that. Daddy, what if somebody steals our gold? 
We don't have any gold at the house. It's stored safely in the UPMA vault, securely and insured. But the S&P 500 outperformed gold. Daddy, gold is a bad investment. Some people do think of it that way, but actually gold is money. And as members of the United Precious Metals Association, we can use our gold at any store, just like a credit card. Or I can ask them to drop it right into mommy and daddy's bank account because we're a UPMA member family. Find out more at upma.org. That's upma.org. Why don't we say to the government writ large that they have to spend a little bit less? Anybody ever had less money this year than you had last? Anybody better have a 1% pay cut? You deal with it. That's what government needs, a 1% pay cut. If you take a 1% pay cut across the board, you have more than enough money to actually pay for the disaster relief. But nobody's gonna do that because they're fiscally irresponsible. Who are they? Republicans. Who are they? Democrats. Who are they? Virtually the whole body is careless and reckless with your money. So the money will not be offset by cuts anywhere. The money will be added to the debt, and there will be a day of reckoning. What's the day of reckoning? The day of reckoning may well be the collapse of the stock market. The day of reckoning may be the collapse of the dollar. When it comes, I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you it has happened repeatedly in history when countries ruin their currency. All right, Kirk Crosby with me, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, sir. Buenos dias. Uh, greetings and salutations. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Thank you, Sam. Our interview with Michelle is timely and critical uh, as we are uh, just past Thanksgiving. As we approach the uh, Christmas season, it's really time to understand this. And I remember I was on the radio a couple of years ago with you, Kurt. And someone brought up homelessness, and, and uh, many of uh, the comments that I made, people were not happy with. I basically said, hey, you know what? There's not a whole lot we can do about it. And, I, and I'm sad to have said that, although I think my point is still true. The average American struggles to do anything about it because we're so far away from it. We don't understand it. We don't know what the solutions are. Uh, it's uh, somewhat an unsavory involvement to where we're not comfortable and so I don't think there's nothing we can do. I think that it just takes knowledge and experiment. Uh, I shouldn't say experimentation. It takes knowledge and an understanding of how to get involved, where to get involved, who's in into the solutions and what we can do. And I've done some study since that couple of year ago discussion point. And I don't think it's that we can't do anything. It's that we don't know how. And I still think that rings true. And Michelle Steeb's book, she's the author of Answers Behind the Red Door. MichelleSteve.com is her book, uh, and you can check it out and get it. But I want to bring this up, though, that there are solutions. And you know what? Michelle says that it starts with government. And as you heard her on the radio, she's not really a you know proponent of big government per se. Uh, she's not really political is kind of the point that I want to draw upon. But she acknowledges that a lot of this has, over decades, been put in the hands of government. Now, over time, can we take that back and have churches more involved and, and, and individuals more involved and volunteers and private sector solutions and philanthropy efforts? Absolutely. And should we move towards that? In my personal opinion, the answer is yes. I don't speak for Michelle. However, I will say this, though. You can't just wake up tomorrow and do that. And as I mentioned before on the radio a couple of years ago, if I wanted to start a homeless camp tomorrow, 
I can't. And we joke and say the government doesn't like competition. But really, this is a county issue. This is a federal issue because that's where the majority of the funding comes from right now. Now, you can say, well, we don't like that. It shouldn't be. And you may be right, but it is. And we got to live in the real, even though we teach to the ideal. The ideal is we'd all be good Christians and there'd be nobody homeless among us. That's the ideal. Uh, But when we don't do our duty as Americans, uh, government eventually fills the vacuum, right? And that's what's happened for decades on end. And now we're going to have to work with government officials and work over time to change policies and make a difference. So believe it or not, President Trump is doing that. Uh, It's called expanding the toolbox. And it basically says reduce homelessness, expanding the toolbox. The whole of government response to homelessness. The plan shares strategies to increase self-sufficiency and focuses on trauma-informed care. By considering homelessness beyond the sole issue of housing. So the goal is to explore the root causes for each individual and family experiencing homelessness. Now that's quite a bit of what Michelle said. All right, and it starts with expanding the toolbox. President Trump is starting to do something about this. Uh, she was kind of cautious because she doesn't want to make it a political or a one-side issue. Uh, but going forward, we hope that we can expand options, that we can move to the private sector, that we can find ways forward where everybody can be involved and we can take the politics uh, out of this. Uh, and I don't speak for Michelle, but as far as I understand, that's her hope. And that would be mine as well. Kurt, do you want to comment on the interview and comment on the uh, progress the Trump administration is making? Well, you know, it seems so many times, Sam, that the answer, um, at least in my opinion, lies in the kind of little phrase, uh, make America great again. Um, when you look at um, what used to be the way that homelessness was addressed, uh, at least uh, before the advancement of bigger and bigger and bigger government, um, you had the churches um, and the regular private citizenry simply uh, participating in that in so many ways. Uh, you know, and you can you can talk about um, the intrusion of government at so many levels uh, to take away the people's opportunities uh, for, I guess you could say, charitable opportunities. Um, you know, when you look at my lifetime and the uh, movement of... Uh, government of the growth of government where we've literally gone from uh, government taking five percent of our earnings um when i was born you know if you made a hundred bucks then they took about five bucks whereas now it's close to sixty dollars uh, out of every hundred that is you know consumed and you know eaten up by massive government at all levels and they say that, you know, many, many people will argue that because uh, there are these social needs as well as other needs that need to be addressed. And I would simply suggest to you that, in my opinion, um, if you look at the way things used to be, when 
we had much less government and the churches and the people had much more of their own money to do with it what they felt moved to do, uh, whether it was an individual case that they might have known of, uh, a neighbor or someone uh, that was in need, or, uh, you know, in a bigger way uh, that uh, we've seen, you know, movements by churches, um, not only the one that we're a member of, but many others that, you know, on a regular basis, when there's a disaster, a hurricane, a tsunami or whatever, it's rare to find churches not being the first, if not, uh, you know, in, in the first few groups that are there on the ground with uh, boots on the ground, as they say, helping to uh, find the solutions and make a difference in people's lives. And and uh, we've talked about those stories where you see the uh, government uh, coming in and trying to stop somebody uh, going and feeding the homeless on the beach or something and saying, oh, no, you don't have a permit for that or whatever. I mean, you know, things like that are just um, show you how much we've got to make America great again by returning to the, well, the way things were. Well, there's so many things that can be done. You know, when you look at it, to get a home now is very expensive, Kurt. To have shelter is very expensive. If you go back to Thoreau, you know, he did an experiment, whatever. He lived 18 months out in the boonies with virtually nothing and went back to a very simple, simple, simple life. And we learned from that experience, really, that there's kind of four fundamental things that you need. You need uh, shelter. You need uh, food. You need clothing. uh, And you need some kind of a fuel to stay warm or whatever in the cold. Um, And you know what? Those are kind of the four things you need. Shelter, clothing, food, and fuel. Uh, And it really is that simple of a solution to provide some of the basics for these people. But because you have so much zoning, because you have so much regulation, I mean, if you're going to build a little shelter for somebody, it's got to be to, quote, international building standards, and it's got to this, and it's got to that. And, well, you're not allowed to really have a home near the city or in the county without electricity or without plumbing or with, you know, and, and by the time you do plumbing, then you say, well, it's not enough just to have plumbing. You got to follow, quote, international plumbing standards, or you got to build to this specification, or you've got to get a permit for this, and you've got to, you know, and before you know it, it's incredibly expensive. Even if you buy a lot, a little piece of ground in America these days, it's going to cost you thousands of dollars just to get hooked up to the electricity, just to get hooked up to the uh, sewer system. That's if you're in the city, or thousands of dollars to get a septic tank put in if you live out in the country uh, or whatever. And, And some of these things just cost a lot of money beyond the ability of one individuals who are homeless to handle it and then beyond the ability for guys like me or you or others to even help them i mean it's just i i can't provide thousands of dollars give them a place they won't be able to hold on to it how do we create a long-term solution and that's kind of where i think we really need to work in my opinion is to reduce some of these expenses to reduce some of these regulations to simplify the plan and say hey uh, if I drive from, say, uh, Montana all the way up at the corner or the border of Montana and what, uh, Canada, and I drive all the way from there all the way down to, say, Texas or Florida, Kurt, there's a lot of space. 
You could build a lot of cities relatively easily. You could build homeless camps. Or can you? And I find that it's very, very, very difficult. And I've actually tried some of this stuff. Because I do care. This issue does matter. One of the most important things we can do in life is be our brother's keeper. Quick pause. Sam and Curtin seconds. Proclaiming liberty across the land. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA Radio News with Lance Pride. President Trump announced Thursday COVID-19 vaccines will start being distributed to Americans next week or the week after. Trump said the first rollouts will be sent to frontline workers, medical personnel, and senior citizens. Iron Mike Tyson, now 54 years old, is getting ready to go back into the ring to box. Well, listen, I'm not trying to knock nobody out, like you said, but I'm trying to um, protect myself at all times. Mike Tyson on GMA. I've been getting in shape. I've been feeling good. My brother-in-law asked me that I want to fight somebody. I said, no way. Then the light went off in my head. I said, hey, but did they want to box me? Because the guy was an MMA fighter. And so... He said, yeah. So I said, I'll box anybody. Mike Tyson versus 1988 silver medalist Roy Jones Jr. Live at the Staples Center in Los Angeles Saturday night. The pay-per-view event will set you back about 50 bucks. Thanks for listening. This is USA Radio News. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. I've been taking vitamins off and on my whole adult life, and I've never seen any change. Not like this, not since I've been on balance of nature. I used to take prescription medication for uh, muscle aches and stuff. I don't take that anymore. I wish I'd have started it back when I first heard about it on the radio. And if I can give balance of nature any advice, keep it out on the radio because I still hear these commercials from time to time, and I'm thinking, you know, you people need to listen up. I mean, I'm over 50. And, you know, your body starts wearing down. But now with nature has literally changed my life. It really has. Get a wide variety of all your daily recommended servings of whole fruits and vegetables without having to leave your home. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code USA. The Paris Climate Accord, very expensive with minimal results. Let's get the latest with USA Radio News, Dan Naraki. President-elect Joe Biden has made climate change one of his top priorities, and he says he will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. President Trump pulled the United States from that treaty in 2017. Economist Stephen Moore says that leaving the accord was the right move and that going back to it is a policy that puts America last. He told Fox News that the deal does nothing to stop other big polluting countries at the expense of American industry and American jobs. The Paris Climate Change treaty is is a joke i mean the single biggest polluter in the world by far by far is china and it doesn't require china to do anything for another 10 years meanwhile we have to shut down our coal plants we have to shut down our oil and gas uh facilities that that employ you know millions of workers we have to use more expensive energy while china and india and uh, and russia lap behind our back so i i don't think it's a very wise thing to do from the usa radio news ohio bureau i'm dan naraki So I searched online, ladies and gentlemen. I just asked a simple question. 
can I create a homeless tent camp? Oh, the results you get back are quite interesting. And uh, here's what I get, Kurt. For the most part, the most, uh, you know, the scary point that I get back is this. Cities have enacted laws in recent years to prevent homeless people from living in their towns, to give law enforcement officers support towards this goal. Cities have made it illegal for people to live in their cars on streets. Um, you can't park in parking lots and even on private property. In some cases, it's even illegal to tent camp in your own private property home backyard. So this is kind of the problem that we face, Kurt. And as I've studied this issue in depth, uh, it's very difficult for the average individual to help, to do much about it, to make a difference. If I wanted to go ahead and create a camp way out in the middle of nowhere, first off, the land's owned by who knows who. It's very hard to get a hold of. Uh, I might buy a big tract of land out in the boonies somewhere for 320 acres. But I'm going to get a big fight by a county saying, well, wait a minute, you can't just build a city there. You can't just bring tons of people in. There are ordinances. There's a, wait a minute, I'm in the county. Yeah, the county commission decides. There's zoning. You can't break it down into little pieces. Yeah, can't. So you got all kinds of rules. And then, oh, I got to get water. I got to get electricity. I got to, I got to, I got to. And no one wants this in their backyard. So this is a very serious issue, Kurt, and we've got a lot of work to unwind. Regulations and government involvement and everything else. But cities have enacted these laws. Can I create a homeless tent camp? A very interesting question. The answer is, for the most part, no, you can't, Kurt. Well, it's a great point, Sam. And, uh, you know, we've we've talked uh, some about this in the past as we've, uh, you know, looked at some of these different options for housing and uh you know it's interesting to me to see you get you get these uh, so-called government officials that are so concerned with uh, you know the quote homelessness problem if you will and yet uh well their actions will literally uh cause that uh you know we've uh, we've talked about these uh cases where you could you could uh you know I mean, we have areas, and you mentioned zoning. We have areas in cities now where they have uh, so-called zoning in effect, where you can have like these uh, motor or mobile homes, or these uh, you know homes that aren't on a, a fixed foundation, if you will. Um, why not, um, you know, have much more? Um, I guess you could actually say the word freedom. When it comes to um, the use of the land, and and uh, you know, so many times uh, we see things that would make uh, life much better uh, or much less expensive for folks. Uh, when it comes to uh, what were the things that you mentioned, the main things you got to have fuel, uh, food. Um, yeah, you got to have clothing, and you got to have shelter. Not in that Very order. Good. They're all kind of just as critical. I mean, I would say you need food first, clothing second, shelter, and then fuel to keep it warm enough, right? Yeah, warm or, you know, at least if you need to for cooling. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is you got to have those four basic kind of things. And, and it seems like so many times if you're going to have 
governments regulating the size of the lot, and like you mentioned, uh, you know where you can put it and how, how your house has to look, or you know whatever. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm currently looking at some different options, uh, just like for us. And you know, if you want to have, uh, say, a home with, uh, you know, say a bigger home, it seems like a lot of times that I can see. A bigger home will give you a better price per square foot uh, simply because, you know, most of the time that works that way. Um, you know, um, where you'd want to have, say, a few other apartments in it or something like that. Oh, you know, you've got these regulations to deal with. You know all about that. Um, and you know about it that when it comes to uh, taking uh, pieces of land and trying to uh, – Say hey, uh, let's let's make this so friends of mine or my family can fit on it. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't know if you want to elaborate on certain things that you've seen, but you know, like uh, I've seen that to be the case. Uh, little government officials, uh, whether it's governors or even presidents, uh, federal, state, county, whatever, they always want to hop in there. You just, you know, one of the main rules I want to suggest to people is don't ask your you know bureaucrats what you can do you know pretend like you're an american that's free to do those things and i'm not talking about burning uh, police buildings down or starting police cars on fire uh, but i am saying that we should act as free citizens to uh go forward and uh, you know but pretend at least that we are free to do the things that we should be able to do. The three basics of human survival, they say, is food, clothing, and shelter. Okay? They're essential for our existence, if you will. Uh, and I add fuel to that because, again, you've got to be able to cook. You know, how do you get the food without fuel? You know, you won't have the ability to cook. But here's the problem. They say an additional list of basic needs. Besides food, water, shelter, clothing, etc. To me, when you say food, it means water also, right? But they say modern lists emphasize a minimum level of the consumption of basic needs, not just food, water, and shelter, but also sanitation, education, and health care. And the problem with that, Kurt, is what you get is a, a battle of what becomes a basic need. And now we debate that until the cows come home. And that's kind of part of the problem, too, is we struggle with definitions. We struggle with basic needs. We struggle with what it means. If I wanted to create a camp out in the boonies, I mean, just drive out anywhere you go, out into the country, I don't know, an hour. So you're just in the boonies. And if I wanted to create a, you know, just say I got 300 acres. How do I get the ground? How expensive is it? Now, can I get water? Can I get, you know, any type of communications, Internet or whatever? And you would say, well, Internet's not a basic need. And in modern times, if you're going to be able to, you know, get a job of some kind, it might be, right? And, and, and so you go down this big list and you say it's very complex and expenses ratchet up in a hurry. And I'm personally doing an experiment with this right now, Kurt, right now. I'm in the middle of a grand experiment with land and what you can do and how expensive it is and how can you live minimalistically. And how, what, what are the choices? And it's very complex, sir. It's very hard. 
to deal with this in a way that's that's, that's meaningful and productive and etc. Are you there, Kurt? Yeah, I'm just, what do you think? just hoping you'll kind of elaborate on it. You know, you might as well. I remember years ago um, when uh, Chuck Harder, uh, you know, one of our, I I don't want to say mentors or whatever, but we learned a lot. Uh, he was from, certainly a mentor to uh, us, without a doubt. You know, I remember him talking about the, uh, yeah, it seemed like it was a solar home kind of thing. Yeah, he called it the he, ELU house. Okay. Um, you know, and, and it was basically a way that you could live uh, a lot less you know, expensively and you could put these, you know, places uh, pretty much anywhere. And, you know, and then, of course, we've talked about these, uh, um, what do they call them, these storage, not storage units, but these uh, container homes kind of thing. Uh, you know, there's just so many options and yet... Uh, you know, many times the government wants to clamp down on that. Uh, so I'm just thinking if you're right in the middle of it, I'm kind of in the middle of, you know, as I mentioned, the idea of, uh, you know, getting a bigger house, but making it so that several families can be there at the same time, you know, can live in that and use that space so that, you know, you're doing it a little more economically. I see it done uh, probably illegally, uh, you know, according to certain city regulations, et cetera, by uh, many times those who, you know, some would call the Hispanic uh, crowd, if you will, uh, where they'll live in a, you know, a home and just share it. And, uh, you know, they're pretty smart about using their uh, means to make sure that everybody has a place. And, uh, and uh, that's one of the ways they get ahead, I think. Uh, what do you want to elaborate on your situation, or do you? Maybe Just you don't answering want to... phone calls, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear There you that. go. So uh, we'll talk about it right after the pause, though. Kurt wants me to expand on my experiences, which I will do. We're going to have a whole series on this over the next several months and weeks and years as some of the things we're working on unfold. We'll share them with you. We're not shy. Uh, We're also going to talk to Dean, who has experienced homelessness quite a bit, who just called in. Hang tight. You're listening to Liberty Roundtable Live. You know where the solution can be found, Mr. President? In churches, in wedding chapels, in maternity wards across the country and around the world. More babies will mean forward-looking adults, the sort we need to tackle long-term, large-scale problems. American babies in particular are likely going to be wealthier, better educated, and more conservation-minded than children raised in still industrializing countries. As economist Tyler Cowen recently wrote, quote, by having more children, you're making your nation more populous, thus boosting its capacity to solve climate change. The planet does not need for us to think globally and act locally so much as it needs us to think family and act personally. The solution to so many of our problems at all times and in all places is to fall in love, get married, and have some kids. Have we realized the assault against our lives, our liberties, our faith? To defeat this assault, Christians and all people of goodwill 
should have strategies to prevail in our faith and principles, which are simple. No need for a complex formula. One goal, one aim. A strategy like the heroic Christians of the past. We win, they lose. Nothing less. Big Q, Little Q. The Calm Before the Storm by a friend of Megagoria. The Strategy of Heaven Revealed. Big Q, Little Q. The Calm Before the Storm. Available on Amazon.com or by calling Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about homelessness, a serious problem in the country. Dean from Utah chimes in. Hi, Dean. Hi, hi um, Sam and Kurt. Anyway, he was talking about a couple years ago. I think it was a couple years ago. Uh, it was uh, between uh, Thanksgiving and December of 2018 when I called you and living in a tent over in American Fork on 5th East. And uh, anyway, I just uh, I lived below uh, below 50 near the lake. Uh, my parents had a farms down there, uh, farm down there since the late 1800s, and so I'm very familiar with that area, which is kind of destroyed now, in my opinion. But this abandoned field was abandoned ever since I I was born and before. So some 62 years, this little field was abandoned, and it was tucked into right next to railroad tracks and uh, abandoned property um, with with trees around it so nobody could really see. It wasn't bothering anybody. But anyway, it's virtually impossible to survive, uh, you know, in a, in a homeless situation. You've got so many things going on. And in my case, I, I had no no transportation. And so I'd have to walk wherever I went, and it was like a mile to the bus stop, you know. And you're supposed to have money, you know, when you get on the bus, but it's a, it's a bus to nowhere. So, you know, Dean, let's be clear so people understand: you've been homeless for a long time, is that right? Yeah, since I virtually got divorced in '94, pretty much home, homeless. So, you know, for I twenty-four had, years, the headline that I'm writing for this: a homeless yeah. man, Dean dials in and provides insight yeah and like i say you're you're a target you're a target for every person if you're walking down the road everybody's got 911 on speed dial and you're going to be arrested for something because when a cop comes out he's going to arrest you and uh or give you a bunch of crap you know shake you down and all this stuff you know see if all right you have you listened any. to the whole program today yeah, I have. All right. What do you, what do you think of her um, ideas and proposals about uh, sanctioned tent camp cities, uh, about our point that, you know what, it's very hard to do something to help. Uh, people don't know what to do, how to do it. The, people are so far from it. They don't understand it. Um, government stands in the way with regulations and everything else to a great degree. What do you think of the whole scenario and discussion? If you've lived it for 25 years, I want to get your take and your input. Yeah, that's that's the real problem. The, the government uh, and also uh, 
when people hand somebody to like money to like the Red Cross and all this stuff, and almost all places that have those 5013Cs are just a laundering uh, organization, money laundering organization. Mike uh, is my theory on that. And I, I don't have the answers, but it needs to be a place where you can just go and, and relax and not worry about being kicked out the next day, uh, kind of get your life in order and uh, have something to do to be busy. And what I found, you know, through being around agriculture my whole life, if people could have a little plot of land where they could grow a garden, there's plenty of land st still around this, like this Utah County area that's vacant, vacant lots and stuff where you virtually don't need any irrigation. But there's plenty of irrigation around here. And uh, to, to just grow grow your own stuff, to have your own thing, and uh, and to be able to shower at the end of the day and lay your head down without worrying about uh, having arrest warrants for you or the cops coming. What about or, our general point? Hey, there's the four basic four basics of human survival. That's food, clothing, shelter, and fuel. Is that a pretty good start? Is that right? Yeah, but there's the, the problem with the food is how do you keep it? And how do you keep a how do you keep a good diet? The, the diet is the big thing, and uh, but yeah, and you're saying fuel? that because there's not an ability to cook unless you have fuel in a place to cook. Right, there's not ability to refrigerate, so you can't keep things long term, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Yeah, sanity, wa wa uh, water to wash your uh, dishes and stuff, and on cups, and you know, I, I've been through the whole gamut of having a trailers and motor homes and. I'm in a garage right now, pretty comfortable here, uh, but I, I've got to go, you know, a ways to use the restrooms and the showers and stuff. I got a friend that reached out that I've known that um, for years, and he's a wealthy man, and you know, but but then you know, you his employees see you out here, and everybody's curious about how you live and what you do and. So it brings spotlight on you. Then, like I was mentioned the other day, then the uh, federal marshals come down here on this property and arrested my son for this uh, uh, meth distribution supposedly a year ago. And he has nothing to do with it. So now he's f facing federal felony charges. They've let him out, but he's got so many restrictions on him. So we're going to try to get this out in the media. All right, uh, we could we can work on that. Uh, yeah, but yeah, uh, another time. Certainly, right. there is, a, and the problem is, it becomes so many overlapping issues to where it's just it, impossible it, it, for people to it, understand it, to do exactly. anything about it. I mean, it's hard to even comprehend. But for all intents and purposes, how accurate do you think our delivery's been on this on the reality that people face? Really accurate, and uh, like I say, it, it, it takes a, a team of people uh, to. To really understand it, and mostly the people that's been through it, you know, being in and out of the jail so many times, I, I meet these people down there at the jails. And one of my friends, Bill, first time I met him, he's virtually homeless, clear back in '96, and I see him. He's in and out of there, been in and out of there 84 times, never had a felony, but he, wherever he goes. He'll get a trespass or something like that and back in the jail. And they'll put him in there for the maximum without a good time. I don't know what they try to prove on that, but like he says, Utah County Jail is just a homeless shelter.
And, and that, uh, that's kind of the problem that we point out. So the law becomes a big issue. The point that I made here um, about, hey, can I create a homeless tent camp? And they've enacted laws and they've created law, um, you know, enforcement officers and police officers and to give law enforcement officers, hey, they've made all this stuff illegal. And so everywhere you go as a homeless person, you're really breaking the law almost everywhere you go and everything you do just to try to exist. Is that the point, Dean? Yeah, that's exactly the point. In fact, I've been supposedly trespassed from American Fork with, I've never had it, uh, I've, I've won all, well, not won, but they've dismissed all my charges that I've, that they've, they've charged me with, but I was arrested at, at the cemetery to try to bury my son. And so, uh, I don't know how everybody- A different everybody's... son than the one that's been arrested, right? Yeah, I had. I, I got three people sons. to understand yeah. that, that we're, yeah. we're making sense here, folks. Right. We're not just babbling incoherency here. They're, they're, uh, poor Dean's been through a lot. Uh, he's had uh, certainly uh, problems with the law for decades, uh, and uh, you know the problem becomes what can be done. Dean, thank you so much, sir. You, thank you. Bye. Okay, he's polite. He's respectful. Kurt, what do you do in situations like this? Well, uh, at least. Once again, to me, uh, you know, I remember stories of uh, that we've seen over the years where you see uh, government, for example, uh, some somebody's uh, gets arrested because they had like 37 welfare checks or, you know, uh, they uh, I mean, and they were driving around in a, you know, brand new Cadillac or whatever. And, uh, you know, if you get the government out of these things and lower the taxes so that the people themselves have their own money. So many times when people are taxed so much, they feel like, well, you know, I'd help, but the government's got all these programs. You know, I, uh, you know, and I can just barely make it having to pay all these taxes. So, you know, I'm going to leave that to them. Um, forced charity is not really the way that uh, God intended charity to happen and uh so what we need is the you know a, a stepping back in so many ways of making america great again uh kind of plan where we basically get government out of those areas and let the churches and the individuals uh take that back over now there's going to be big time uh, uh pushback about that whole idea from the godless crowd, if you will, because what they want to do is replace God with government in so many ways, Sam. And uh, so to me, it it starts in so many areas, whether it's the control of land and the so-called zoning, uh, you know, type type of thing, and, and or all the ideas that, uh, you know, what is required uh, for somebody to live there, you know, I mean, how many bathrooms does each person have to have and how much space, uh, you know, and all these different things. It's interesting that, you know, uh, an individual in jail can be housed in a very small area. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you consider, as far as I know, each cell has a bathroom. They don't have a, they don't have a kitchen, but, you know, if, if you, it's interesting that that kind of, quote, zoning can be approved for living, uh, 
there in jail, and yet, oh, if it was outside and you wanted to do a private sector uh, kind of solution to the homeless problem, and you gave somebody that same amount of space, maybe a little more for a, a kitchen, uh, you know that, oh, you know, you'd be some kind of a criminal, right? Unfortunately, the answer is that is right. And by the way, I don't want anybody to think we uh, made a deal with Dean to call in. He just happens to be a listener, and uh, he just happens to be quite knowledgeable, and he happens to be homeless, and he's been so for a long time. I don't know Dean super well, uh, but I have talked to him on the phone many times, and uh, I, I've been familiar and updated on his familiar with and updated on his plight for quite some time. And I don't know what can be done. I don't know what I can do. I don't have the ability to let him, you know, stay anywhere that I can afford or deal with. I don't mind helping out maybe with a couple of dollars or getting it, but I don't know. I don't have long-term sustainability uh, for him. Uh, and if he's just going to continue to have brushes with the law, even if I get him a place to be, if he goes to jail, what good will that do? Now I've got a place that no one's in until he gets out. So what do you do about this? And the problems are many. And I don't want you to believe the solutions are easy. But I do believe there are solutions to this, Kurt. And I think it starts with the way the Savior taught us to be, to minister to one another. I do think it starts with kindness and judge not attitudes. I think it starts with a little bit at a time. I think it starts with being volunteers and getting involved and familiarizing ourselves with these issues. It also starts with education and training. It starts with kindness. And it starts with a desire to make a difference. Now, that's my summation. Kurt, you want the final word? I think you got it covered, Sam. Good work. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, we will keep you up to date on our experiments and what we're doing and how it's working out and everything else. I'll, I'll tell you some stories about this over the next several weeks and months from a personal involvement point of view. All right. We'll do it. Thanks for being alongside for the ride. Thanksgiving weekend. Spend time with your family. Spend time. Hashtag give thanks for all that we have. And then let's find a way to help others. Shall we? For Sam and Kurt, we declare this nation shall endure. God save the Republic of the United States of America.